0: This is Francis Whittleson. This is Benjamin Anderson. This is Dallas Alexander. I'm Alex Grainer. This is Forrest Moretti. This is Chris Sims. This is Chris Barber, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Monday. Hope everybody's weekend, uh, you know, got along to get along, you know? I hope it all went uh, well. Here on this side, things are moving along, and uh, we got lots to get to. First off, SMP Presents uh, Legacy Media featuring Kid Carson, Wayne Peters, Chris Sims, and Mr. Byron Christopher, today's guest. Uh, tickets in the show notes. That's March 18th in Edmonton. So that's just a, a quick reminder. Uh, hope to see you there. Now, Canadians for Truth, they're a nonprofit organization consisting of Canadians who believe in honesty, integrity, and principled leadership in government as well as Canadian Bill and Rights, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the Rule of Just Laws. They also say on their website, we were founded to provide a community for people who believe in the importance of truth, freedom, and justice. We deliver high-quality media and engaging events intended to unify Canadians under a common set of values. They got two shows coming up with Theo and Jamie. The first um, with Brian Dennison on uh, March 23rd. The second, March 26th, Dr. Paul Alexander. So if you're looking to... uh, um, uh, see a live show, uh, go to CanadiansForTruth.ca for more details. Uh, Brian Dennison and P- Dr. Paul Alexander. Uh, team over at Prophet River, Clay Smiley and uh, the team over there, they are uh, specialized in importing firearms from the United States of America, pride themselves in making the process as easy as possible for all of you wonderful people. And they also do all the appropriate paperwork on both sides of the border and legally get that firearm into your hands wherever you're sitting no matter where you're at in Canada and we all know the laws and everything else are making it a little more tricky difficult what's the word you choose I don't know just go to ProfitRiver.com and if uh, you know you're not the, the hunt, hunter sportsman uh, you could also just do a, a gift card and do that for the hunter or sportsman in your life. Uh, Once again, they ship anywhere in Canada. So just go to ProfitRiver.com. They are the major retailer of firearms, optics, accessories, and they serve all of Canada. Windsor Plywood, the team over there, Carly Clausen, builders of the podcast studio table. When it comes to wood, these are the guys. And I tell you what, with spring, we actually said it tonight. Oh, pretty soon we're going to get to, I mean... We're sitting in March, folks. I know we're a little ways away, but we were actually talking about deck furniture. I want to say it again. Deck furniture. Man, I love this time of year. Spring is so freaking close. I'm like, oh my God. Can you imagine deck furniture with a a little bit of a fire and, you know, the lights on? Wouldn't that be something? Anyways, Sean's getting all excited. Whether we're talking mantles, decks, windows, doors, sheds, or a podcast studio table, Windsor Plywoods, the team, I'm just saying, spring. You know, we go through a lot of stages on the old podcast. I get close to fall, and I'm like, I don't want to talk about it, because I know what comes after it's winter, blah, blah, blah. But this time of year, I love talking about spring. I love talking about what's coming up next, because we all know the sun's shining more. We're starting to feel it. We're starting to see it. And the fact is, I get to talk about spring a bit more. I'm happy. So go to, so go, and now you hear kids in the background. That's funny. Uh, g- go to Windsor Plywood for all your wood needs. Anyways, we're having fun on this side. Tyson and Tracy Mitchell, Mitchco Environmental, a family-owned business that has been providing professional vegetation management services for both Alberta and Saskatchewan in the oilfield and industrial sector since 1998. One of the things that comes along with uh with spring is a huge hiring spree. Hiring spree. Jeez, that sounded odd coming out of my mouth. I'm not gonna lie. Hiring uh is uh Mitchco Environmental. They're uh, coming in that season where pretty soon here they're gonna be going to work. The the old snow is gonna man. I'm I'm a, I'm in a. I'm gonna be honest, folks. I'm pretty positive right now. The sun's gonna melt. You know, the sun's coming out, and Mitchko is gonna be hiring. Anyways, I don't know. I, I must be having a good uh, a good week here. I don't know what's going on with me. You know, love to be a little more, whatever you need. But anyways, here I am sitting, and uh, I love when. You know, there's no breaks, and I don't get to re- re-record. This is what you get. Sean's in a good mood, I guess. Mitchko Environmental. All you college students looking for summertime opportunities uh, and work, trying to make a, you know, put a coin in your pocket. This is uh, this is one of the places to land. Mitchcocorp.ca for all the info, or give them a call, 780-214-4004. Once upon a time, I suited up for him, And uh, let me tell you, um, you know, when it comes to... Uh, uh, working the summer away, you're going to be outside. You're going to be all over our beautiful, uh, province and provinces, I should say, cause we're right along the border. So you're going to be working both sides. They're looking for uh, good people and that's coming up. They get like right away here. They're going to be huge hiring spree. So if you're looking for uh, summertime work in between uh, semesters, you know, I mean, your are little break and you're looking to make some coin, um, stop into, uh, Mitchco Environmental uh, to uh, find out more information. That way you can get hooked up. That's MitchcoCorp.ca. Okay? Gartner Management, they're a Lloydminster based company specializing in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs. Whether you're looking for a small office or, you know, things are moving along and you got tons of uh, employees, give Mr. Wade Gartner call, 780 808 5025. And uh, I should point out that uh, if you're a business anywhere in these. Uh, I don't know, actually, it doesn't even matter what province. If you uh, listen to the S M P. and you like what I babble about, and at sometimes you like how I torture a company, and maybe you like how uh, S M P. stands for freedom of speech and a couple other things, and you want to get involved, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, there is open spots. Would love to have you part of the team. Just go to the show notes, uh, phone number there. Shoot me a text, and uh, we'll get in touch. See how we can work together, and would love to have you on board. Okay. Now, let's get on that tale of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field location. For more information, visit them at hancockpetroleum.ca. He's been a journalist for more than 30-plus years with experience in mainstream and independent media. His style of work has been referred to as Armageddon-like blood and guts, crime reporting. He's filed stories across North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia, with most of his journalistic career focused on Western Canada. During the two decades that he worked for the CBC and for 630 Ched, he won national awards for both his print and radio journalism. He's known for his ability to secure exclusive interviews with convicted criminals and is sometimes the only media source that high-profile criminals will contact. Finally, he taught journalism at Grant McEwen College. I'm talking about Byron Christopher, so buckle up, here we go.
1: This is Byron Christopher, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast.
0: Okay, welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast today. I'm joined by Byron Christopher. So, sir, uh, thanks for uh, having me again.
1: Well, it's good to be back with you. I see you've made an improvement to your face.
0: <laughs> you have a beard. Beard and teeth, yes. It's it's quite the improvement. <laughs> you know, before uh, we got going here, I, I was mentioning it was um, episode 150 is when you were first on the podcast. That was February 2021. And as we sit here now, it's February 2023. You're going to be episode 395. There's been a lot happen in a, in a couple of years. And uh, parts of our, our first chat... Uh, well, are an in, interesting time capsule, um, you weren't concerned about COVID at that time, you weren't concerned, and you, you joked uh, about it being a pandemic or a pandemic, and I remember hearing that and being like, oh, actually, I don't know, you know, that was so early on, and maybe not even that early on, but uh, well before I was interviewing all the doctors and everything else. Um, how have you been over the past two years, I guess, is maybe where we should start? Well, I believe I had uh,
1: the COVID flu, Uh, because I was under the weather for about a week. Uh, I was not ever vaccinated against it, and I'll tell you why. It's an experimental injection, Um, I won't take part in that. I've been vaccinated many times, uh, especially back in 1969, when I was traveling to Australia, because my plan was to work on the freighters to get there for a cheaper rate, and I had to be vaccinated for every damn disease possible. And I was injected many times. I never worried about it at all. But those um, vaccines were more true vaccines. They had been tested. And back then, the drug companies did not have immunity from prosecution. If they served a poisonous product, they could be sued. Not the case today. That ended in the mid-80s with Ronald Reagan changing the laws, and we followed suit. So they, uh, they have immunity. And So I'd rather not take experimental uh, drugs. I did um, meet when I was on a prison beat, a prisoner at the Edmonton Institution here. Um, I forget what the topic was, but I remember we met in one of the lawyer rooms and one side of his face was deformed. I said, what happened to your face? Were you in a fire or drugs or what happened? He said, no, he said, "I, I took some drugs here. They were experimental drugs hoping to get a better shot at parole. So the prisoners willingly took these experimental drugs, uh, f- hoping there was a benefit for them in it. And this one, in this case, this gentleman, his face was deformed one, on one side. It seemed odd. but uh, And I checked with a senior guard there. I said, does that go on? Do you do, e- like these guys ed- uh, agree to be guinea pigs? I guess he said they do. He said, it's not right, but it's been going on for years. So what's happening today, the, the people now are like that prisoner. They would like to travel, uh, like to go to movies, and so forth. So they agree to it. Um, so I'm, I'm not into that, sorry. And, and I think I had that flu, and I got over it, and I'm fine. But my daughter's mother-in-law, Joyce, when she had her second injection, She was in a coma within three hours, and she never got out of the coma. They pulled her off life support and she died. That was because of the Moderna drug. Then I checked around a bit more and then look at David Milgard's death. He didn't have pneumonia. They said he did. Well, I talked to David quite often. Every few days he'd phone, send emails, hundreds of them. Yeah, guy never had pneumonia. Kids said that too, but the doctors said he died related to it but it's funny he was not aware of it and then there's other people as well I'm aware of their deaths are suspicious and of course the leading cause of death in Alberta is no longer cancer or heart attacks it's unknown think about that Christ they can dig up a mummy that's 2,000 years old and tell you how that why that person died And they mean they can't tell me in this day and age that it was because of the injections. Look at the blood clotting. The uh, uh, the autopsies tell everything. So I'm not. If people want to get injected, that's their business. It's fine. I don't try to talk them out of it. But if they try and pressure me into that, I would say no, no, thank you. And I'm well aware that some companies in Edmonton, major companies, were pressuring their staff to be injected. And just hang on a second, there's a Canadian Bill of Rights, the Constitution, that prohibits that. It's illegal to do that. It's like me telling you, Sean, go out and rob a bank today. I need a little money, I'll I'll take half the money you get. You would say, Byron, that's not legal. Yeah, well, neither are forced injections, coerced injections legal as well. And so, I mean, if the Constitution means anything, People should be able to say that simply, and that's the end of the matter. No, okay, no thanks. I won't, won't take the injection. Yeah, we're good with that, but that's not what happened. A lot of people were forced to take it, to keep their jobs and to travel. So these uh, injections were not so much against COVID. They now know they're not safe and not effective That's a fact. They're more, um, they took the injections to make sure they kept their jobs or could travel. Or go to a movies, or join a bowling league, or something. That's why they took it. So that's my sermon on the injections.
0: Well, it, it's interesting. You know, you bring up the uh, Bill of Rights, the Constitution, all those things. Um, did it surprise you that all those pieces of paper just, I mean, they weren't worth the paper they were, they were written on, to be honest, no. uh, at, at the height of this thing. Uh, I think that surprised, you know, I just always assumed at some point law would step in and would take over and deal with this, but that wasn't the case. No. It, it, uh, you know, all the way up, everything's for public safety, everything, 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 throw everything out like over and over and over and over again.
1: Yep, that's true. That was a surprise. And as well, um, if if a doctor or nurse is going to inject anything in your body, you should be told about that, what's in it. You should be told the side effects or what have you. It's a full disclosure that never happened. My daughter phoned a clinic, said, I'm inquiring about the injections. Yes. When would you like to come in with just a second? Uh, Can you tell me about them? What's in them? Uh, The government says it's safe and effective. I said, yeah, but isn't it your right to inform people to give them a choice? And she hung up. That was the answer. Yeah, there's, you know, that, these are all, for me, turnoffs and obvious signs. But, <clears throat> but I'm trying to see a bigger picture, and I'm, I can't. I can't tell you what it's all about. But I sense strongly there are powers to be on this planet that are more powerful than our politicians. And these people have money. Uh, and then when they belong to a club, you know, the Club of Rome or to attend the meetings of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, which advocates a one-world government. That's what they're pushing for. When you have our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, a proud card-carrying member of that organization, whoa, and then you've got the head of the organization, Klaus Schwab, advocating this publicly. It's not a secret. And he regards Justin Trudeau as one of his friends, and he said, I'm proud to say we've convinced most of his cabinet to go along with this. He breaks about it. So, uh, And, of course, when they interviewed, Cla- when Klaus Schwab has been interviewed, uh, behind him is a bookcase. And on the bookcase is a, a bust, a statue of Vladimir Lenin, former leader of the USSR. That's one of his heroes. <clears throat> I mean, I'm not knocking Lenin, but I'm just saying that's where the guy's coming from. We should know that. So, But I am uh, very leery of politicians, especially those who fire cabinet ministers when they're doing their job. That should never happen. And we have a national police force, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, when they found out about that, they said, we're investigating, and they weren't. Nothing's been done. How is it that an engineering company in Montreal can break the rules and nothing happens? Well, I guess they voted liberal, but all that's wrong. And the whole thing just smells, whole damn thing. This business of the um, virus starting at a marketplace in Wuhan, China. Right off the bat, there were scientists and I remember one in England went online to say that's not true. That's not how it starts. There are no live bats at that marketplace. They're 700 kilometers away. That's bullshit. Two years later, they're finally admitting it came from the lab. Oh, duh. Well, who didn't know that? Americans worked at that lab. So did Canadians, Australians. It was a French designed building. I mean, there's a lot of international effort there <clears throat> and excuse me for coughing. Um, and then the, the most stunning thing, you've got the, the chief medical officer, if I can phone him, call him that, uh, in the United States, uh, who had shares in the company that was developing this germ warfare. I mean, what? That would be uh, like a church. Uh, supporting the development of the uh, the missiles that the Germans were flying over Britain during the war and having exploded on, on villages and towns, killing people at random. And now if a church sponsored that, you'd wonder about that church. So you've got uh, this, this gentleman in the States, the, the head of their medical profession there, their chief advisor, Fauci, <coughs> who is in a, his, his shares in the company that's making this germ warfare. I'm like, what? That, that, that's, that's, that's criminal. And then you've got the Center for Disease Control. They've, they've known all along this was not safe. And then you got the uh, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. When reporters said, tell us what's in the these injections, they said, no, we want to keep it under wraps for 75 years. Do you remember that? 75 years. And it was a judge in Texas that overruled that. They said, you can't keep it wrapped up for 75 years. One year from now, you'll have all this disclosed. And now we find out the number of side effects, according to Pfizer's documents. It's around 1300 side effects. Whoa. And one of them is death. And is Pfizer a reputable company? Uh, didn't know anything about it, really. Uh, Now I found out that just a few short years ago, they were given the largest criminal fine in U.S. history, $2.3 billion. They paid it. They make big money. That's like a traffic ticket to you and I. I mean, all this. Do you trust these people? I don't. Yeah, anyway.
0: Well, so that brings me then to, uh, you know, Certainly, uh, you know, I'm nodding my head as I go along, and I I assume most of the audience is nodding their head as they go along as well. And uh, you're a a guy that I admire because you're, you know, not only your willingness to go and uh, investigate different things, and I would uh, encourage people before they travel further down this rabbit hole, they go back to episode 150, and you can hear some of uh, your travels, Byron, and, 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 you know, different things you've seen, saw, and dealt with. Anyways, I, I hear everything he just said, and I'm like, okay. I know it's a simple answer because uh, they're bailed out by the government, but it, I assume it's a simple answer, and that is, you know, when I hear all that, the media co- is just as complicit in this as anyone. Uh, in totally. C- th- like, they, everybody just swept it under the rug. They just enacted like none of this was even remotely factual. They branded anyone who would talk out about it, censored this, censored that. I mean— Looking at your former profession, you know, looking at like working for the CBC or 630 Chad and all these different institutions and watching how they went through this, I was, I was just, I guess I was curious your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I was shocked and also ashamed. You know, I'll take you back to an assignment I had 1990. It was in southern Poland, Auschwitz, little town there. You know it by its German name, Auschwitz, the death camp big one mm-hmm. the biggest death camp. I went there for CBC on the 50th anniversary of the opening of the camp and I stayed right at the camp in fact stayed in a, a hostel there and uh, so I never left the grounds and it's a huge complex but I got to walk around at night and I went out to where the trains would come in it would be with the platform where these people arrived from villages all over Europe and they were lied to when they when the soldiers went around to their village they said you've got an hour to pack your gear and get down to the train station you're being relocated don't worry we're an essential worker we need you so these people uh they weren't happy with it but they went along with it there's of course element of force there too. so they brought with them their children um their children's toys clothing jewelry cutlery things like that you know so here they arrived now at Auschwitz late at night and they're on and it wasn't a regular train this is not a passenger train this is like a cattle car they could not get out once that door was locked that was all a lie you know that they were being uh, relocated so they arrive at Auschwitz and there's thousands of them every day arrived about a thousand a day and they were all bewildered like where are we going next and there would be an SS guard there who would direct them make a uh, decision who would die very soon and who would be used as labor for a while. And that guy was given extra rations of rum to do his job because it wasn't easy playing God. And they were uh, completely fooled, these people. They lined up for their showers. One guy, and I think he was from Romania or somewhere, a a prisoner who survived Auschwitz told me this, they were marching these people into the gas chamber. They didn't know it was a gas chamber. They were told they are going to have a shower. And on the way in, uh, these guys from Romania were saluting the German officers outside. They were so, they so bought into it. Once they get inside the gas chamber, they close the doors. They locked them. They couldn't get out. There's only one door. And they died within 15 minutes. It was all a big lie. It was a big con job. You know, and I think today, that's what's happening with COVID. Is that a con job? Uh, the injections, and time will tell. That's the best way to describe it. But I'll tell you that those people who died in those camps were all lied to about being relocated. Some were working in the camps at, for instance, Auschwitz. It was a big complex the size of Red Deer. So they had all kinds of plants there. Ford and IBM and some American companies were there too. So they were complicit.
0: In Auschwitz?
1: Yeah. General Motors. Yeah. They helped the Nazis with a lot of their trucks. Uh, IBM set up the computer, early computer systems to manage the flow of people to the uh, death camps. Yeah. Drug companies were there. They benefited from these experiments. Now at the Nuremberg trials, there were select executions. Not everyone died. The drug companies, they, I think they just spent a few months in prison. That was it. Um, A lot of people died and media people were executed because they went along with the bullshit. And that's the point I'm raising now, that I'm hoping there's a Nuremberg two where these people, instead of being balanced, giving both sides of a story, just gave one side, you know, it's safe and effective, yes, and yeah, well, that's not what uh, the people outdoors are saying. Look at the protests. Look at the protests in Melbourne, all over the world. Look at the deaths. How is it that all-cause mortality has shot up around the world since the injections? Is that a coincidence? How is it Alberta's leading cause of death is unknown? Come on, wake up, you know, be a bit honest about things. At least be balanced. So, but back then they did uh, take out a number of media people for being part of the charade.
0: Who were the media, uh, do you know off the top of your head who the media people were? Uh, from Auschwitz? Yeah, uh, I, the, the ones that uh, got or executed. executed. No, yeah. I
1: don't. I don't have the names of them, yeah. But there were a number of them killed.
0: And were they from Germany? Yeah. 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 So, That's,
1: that, that troubles me. Well, they, they, uh, they were part of the bullshit. And they knew better. Imagine yourself now. Imagine you and I working in Auschwitz or Auschwitz as a reporter. The trains come in. I asked the people who lived there at the time, Do you not know what's going on in the camp? Well yeah, everyone knew. I said, Well how do you know? You don't there's no tours of the gas chambers. So we knew they were killing lots because of the smell. It would burn them and you could it would really stink in this in the town. So we'd say yeah they're killing more Jews today. And also The trains arrived full, they left empty. They always left empty. Every day they arrived, so we knew. And I I asked one woman, I said, did you speak out against this? Like, how old were you? And she said, 17, 18. I worked in one of the little factories at Auschwitz complex. I said, did you speak out against it? And she said, obviously, no, I didn't. Why didn't you speak out? And here's the answer. I didn't want to lose my job. See? You see it happening today? People don't want to lose their jobs. And that's that's a concern, of course. But they really, of course, they, I'm sure, cared that innocent people were being murdered, especially women and children. They're not soldiers. But they lots of them died there. But their concern was, I can't speak out. I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. You see that today, take the shot, and you'll keep your job. So there's a lot of um, bullshit like that went on then. And I'd wondered if I was a reporter then in Ashwesium trying to report on that, what would happen? You know, go to the editor and say, there's a big story here, the plant down the road, uh, they have four crematoriums and their gas chambers are killing, murdering lots of people every day. That should be our lead story. It won't never get published. I would not only be out of a job, I'd be out of a life, I suppose, being that close to it. So I've often wondered how I would behave if I was a reporter then. I think I would have, uh, I would have tried to do the story, of course. Uh, I don't know what would have happened to me. Maybe I would have lost more than my job. I don't know. But I see it happening today. I mean, I I don't watch television news. I haven't really watched it in thirty years. But the glimpses I've had, they should all begin with a a full disclosure. Fifty. This is an example. Fifty percent of our budget is subsidized by you, the taxpayer. You know, be honest about it. In, interview the editor, and. Uh, <clears throat> Interview the editor and have him on camera explaining well, what percentage of our budget is now paid for by the federal government, and what does that do to our credibility? Put that right out there. That that's a story. Don't you want to know that? If you're watching Global, how do we ever or, get
0: back to that? Yeah,
1: now? I don't know if you if you can, but if in my dream world, I would imagine a newscast starting with a uh, with a warning at the the banner at the bottom just full disclosure, uh, this percentage of our budget is covered by taxpayer funding. It's a grant. So, So, I mean, just be honest about it. But people find it out and it it destroys your credibility.
0: So many people are, you know, like uh, Pierre's ran on a little bit of defunding the CBC, right? And and I'm curious your thoughts on that, right? Like uh, if you wiped out the CBC, let's just say the CBC is no more. They take all the funding away and now it becomes a skeleton organization. Maybe it becomes a zero organization. Maybe it's just not there. Is that a good thing for Canadians or a bad thing?
1: I can't answer that. Um, the time I worked at CBC, we were very proud to work there. And I'm sure some members of the RCMP have the same line. You know. But the, the real world um, is there too. I recall um, the director of our outfit, uh, there's a guy in town. He wanted to be into. He was going making the rounds, and he was bashing CBC. And he said, "I won't have him on our station if he's bashing us." And I, I said, "You should have him on. That's free speech, even if he is bashing you. Let's he hear what he has to see. So I could see a censorship there a little bit. It's more blatant in the private industry. When I did stories on an oil company, oil and gas company in Calgary called Talisman. I worked at a private station, and that did not go over well. When I told them I had a story, they sat on it. The story was broken by an independent media organization in Toronto, and they had three lawyers working on that story, something my station didn't want to touch. And eventually they did when it was picked up overseas by the Financial Times of London and then by the Associated Press in New York. So then it became national and international. So, but they didn't want to touch it and the oil and gas company went around to the station with their notice, their threatening notice. You go ahead with this, we're going after you and that scared them. But in the day, you know, it was CBC, we did those stories. I could remember one, but I could see a change and I'll share one story with you. There was an accident at West Edmonton Mall in one of the rides. And this was just after the Mindbender accident where three people were killed. And it was maybe a year or so later uh, we got a report from someone there that a child, a young girl, was trapped in a device. It had collapsed, and she was down at the. It went under the ground, and uh, went under the floor, and and uh, she was trapped down there. She was injured, and so I went out there with a television reporter. We shared or we shared a vehicle. We went there. It was a Saturday afternoon, light news day, and I walked around and I saw a security guard standing there on guarding something. Um, there was nobody around, and I said, was anyone injured here? And he said, no. I walked past him and looked down into the hole, and there was a girl strapped down there, conscious. And he approached me and grabbed my arm and says, you're out of here. So they called uh, more security, and they escorted both myself and the TV reporter to our car, our, our cruiser. It was a station wagon. We drove away. And the reporter's name was Anna Maria Tremonti. She did television at the time. I just started doing TV. I was doing radio, both CBC. So we went back to work. Um, I was on the radio side typing out the story, and Anna Maria came over and she said, Are you doing it? I said, Yes, I am. She said, I just got a call from West Edmonton Mall. They're threatening to sue us if we go ahead with it. And I said, Well, so be it. I'm going ahead with it. And Westhaven Mall did phone me, the head of communications. It was the same same call she made to Anna Maria. If you go ahead with this, uh, you will be sued. And I said, I guess we'll see you in court. See you later. And I did the story. Anna Maria didn't. She stopped it. But I could see then the pressure, even with the CBC. And the girl lived. She was taken to hospital. She had a back injury. The equipment had failed, and she, it. Um, it's hard to describe it, especially on radio, but it was a device that uh, machine that brought you high in the air and dropped you very quickly, even beneath floor level. But it it didn't have a, the proper compression at the end. It just she just hit with a thud. Something broke, and she was injured because of that. They eventually closed that ride. But um, now the woman, the communications woman with West Edmonton Mall, said, "We don't need this publicity right now." And this is a reference to the roller coaster accident where three people died when their trolley went off the tracks. And I said, yeah, you got that right. You don't need it now. But I did the story anyway, of course. But there was no flack from that. Um, the story about talisman energy, there was a lot of flack over that. We did. We did put it out. And I remember another one where there was a strike by workers at the Shaw Conference Center in downtown Edmonton. It was a bitter strike, fighting on the lines and that. Uh, We got an email from management, not to mention the name Shaw. We were owned by Shaw, Jed, Jed Radio was owned by Shaw. Uh, we were not to mention that it was the Shaw Conference Center. We were to call it the Downtown Conference Center. And my point was that that's not honest. So I think I was the only reporter who referred to it as the Shaw Conference Center. I led with it by saying that more violence at the Shaw Conference Center. And the guys in the studio were just rolling their eyes, here we go again. You know, but I mean, you have to just put the truth out there, not that I... That ain't against the Shaw family, you know, but geez, facts are facts and news is news. And your point that you're raising, and uh, you seem to want to ask the question, can we trust these people? And the answer is you cannot. You really have to be your own editor. And in this day of uh, the internet, computers, you can get alternative news. There's lots of it out there. I mean, you can, if you want to read the Pfizer documents, you can, even the ones that they didn't want public, you can read those. And you can also read what scientists say, virologists say, you can read all that too and make up your own mind. I think too many people sit in front of a television and want to be told.
0: uh, What to think?
1: Yeah, here, think this way, you know, sorry. And I, I bring you back to that story and I may have relayed this before. In 1988, the Winter Olympics were held in Calgary. And as part of the Olympics, every 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 occasion there's an Olympic uh, here, they will carry a torch across the country. And the torch will uh, be carried by various people, you know. Um, and it's quite an honor, yeah. And I remember getting a call from Bob Johnson in Toronto. He was a CBC announcer, a reporter. He did personal insights into things. Bob is a very good writer. And he phoned one day and he said, Byron, I'm looking for a different angle for the Olympics. You've got them coming up in Calgary. And I said, well, we have the the Olympic torch. It's it's now left uh, Saskatchewan. It's on its way to Edmonton. I said, I do have a story about that, that the Olympic torch did not start 2000 years ago in Athens, Greece. No, it didn't. It only started this century. And it happened um, uh, the Olympics uh, were being held in a European country, and the leader of that country wanted to unite the states. They weren't get all getting along. So he came up with this idea to run this torch all around his country, and it got everyone all pumped up. This was something nice. Now, I said, the guy who came up with that idea, he's long dead, and, but his, his, um, uh, his idea lives on with the Olympic torch relay. And he said that's an interesting story i didn't know that and i said yeah it's true you can check it out he said who was this fellow i said adolf hitler they didn't want to do the story because it was adolf hitler that's not right no you've got to detach yourself from taking sides and just say no that's a fact and that was hitler's idea and uh, what are you going to do tear up the autobahn because you don't like Hitler? Or destroy all the Volkswagens? You know, it's just, yeah. So news reporting is tough because you've got to be uh, impartial.
0: My stupid mic stand keeps wanting to slide down on you. Well, that's a that's a tough name, right? Like, I mean, uh, I was mm-hmm. curious where that story was going on who it was going to be. I had a yeah. couple of names in mind. Yeah,
1: that's a true story, and you know, you don't you don't not do news because of that, you know.
0: And yet, that's where we're at.
1: Yeah, well, it's even more so today. Yes. But even then, I'll tell you another good story. We had this terrible tornado in Edmonton. It killed more than two dozen people. I worked all night on that. And and in the evening when the body count was coming in I was in the newsroom we were then on 75th Street and the director of radio for Alberta came up he wanted to know what was going on His name is Ron Smith but he didn't enter the newsroom there was a little bit of a hallway just before he, the newsroom he entered the newsroom he went no further than that and that was respectful i've hired you guys to do your job to get the information Today, they'd be walking over and saying, what do you got in your screen there?" And then, oh, yeah, don't mention that uh, person. Uh, that's my neighbor there, you know. Uh, I mean, that, that wouldn't happen back then. So it it was more of a respectful, it was a profession you were prouder to be uh, proud to be in. I know that when I uh, switched from being a disc jockey to researching and then became a, a reporter, I felt very, I was very proud of that. I still am. I felt, if I could use this analogy, and I don't mean to be a smartass, but I felt as if I had joined a church. But now I find out it's really a brothel. These are horrors when they do not put out both sides of the story. I mean, it should be your choice if you want to be vaccinated with these drugs. That's your fine. That's your business. But there's, it isn't black and white. There, uh, there's another counter story to that, that they're not safe. They call it a conspiracy theory. And I saw one meme that said, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and
0: fact? Three months.
1: Yeah, three months.
0: I've also seen that where it says yeah. uh, conspiracy theory should be called a spoiler alert.
1: Yeah. So, you know, God, I've seen so many things that were reported to be... Initially, is is true, and that found out it was bullshit. You know, here, here, yeah, sorry, but it is just so disheartening.
0: There's there's a there's a rise of, uh, and I don't know if it's a rise. It's just certainly with the internet, anyone become you know. I was saying earlier, kind of like a citizen journalist or independent or whatever uh, term you want to tack yeah. to it. But it's it's very easy to have. Uh, Uh, a live stream, a show, a public figure account or, you know, an influencer Mm -hmm. account, whatever you want to call it, you broke a lot of stories that took you to um, kind of like the edge of the sun where you were almost so close you got burnt up, you know. Uh, And I was curious, you know, uh, when I first started talking openly after I interviewed you, you know, uh, probably episode 180-ish, I started interviewing doctors and journalists and lawyers and professors and the list goes on. I had people, like, you know, text me back then, like, you better be careful, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're getting close to the sun here. And I never, uh, you know, I I think the first time I was on with you, I, I think I was probably a bit naive to what I was trying to do. And uh, now I'm not so much. Now, now I'm, I've, you know... It, it, I think at times it's time to grow up, Sean. Like you, you got to realize what you're, what you're, you know, playing against someone. To all the the citizen journalists, you know, I, I was curious if you could share some of your, I don't know if it's expertise maybe per se, Byron, just on, you know, when you were getting close to the sun what did you see happening? Were you ever worried about government or private businesses or CSIS or any of those organizations where you were like, Ooh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Did yeah. did you, and how did you know?
1: Well, you sense it. I remember working, uh, when I was with CBC, many stories on the Lubicon Cree Indians of Northern Alberta. They were living, they had never signed a treaty. They were way out in the middle of nowhere. But they lived on a huge pool of oil and gas. And when the government found that, the government simply went in and took it. And their, their statement to us was that, well, oh, that's government land. We, we declared that back in 1930. And the Indians said, that's fine, but we've never left this land. Our people have been here hundreds of years. Do you think you can just come in and say, this is your land? Can we say to you, take the northern half of Florida? Are you happy with that? It's not right. So that was the issue there. So I began to to use a term, and then it became somewhat popular, disputed territory. I didn't say it was crown land. I didn't say it was, the Indians had it. I just said disputed territory. And who didn't like that? The government. I think the Indians didn't mind it but because it gave more or less a neutrality. And this business of a land claim, hello, who's got the land claim? It would be the government claiming land that the natives had for hundreds of years. So that was an early experience in that. And then at some point, I was tipped off, believe it or not, by someone with Indian and Northern Affairs in Edmonton. They said, Byron, there was a meeting at at your radio building and you were on the agenda. I said, really, how do you know that? He said, I was there. I said, you were, who else was there? And he names my news director. No I went, what, never told me that. He said, yeah, that's because you're on the agenda. They weren't happy with your coverage. I said, well, I think it's honest. He said, that's not the problem. You're going against the st- status quo here, buddy. And did it um, make me afraid? No, it made me angry actually i said no with these fuckers i'm doing more of these stories you know <clears throat> and then i got a national award shortly after for homicide in saskatchewan so they had to lay off a bit but um yeah i mean yeah i've had some weird things happen um the worst one i think was uh, i set up a surveillance house on my property in the west end of edmonton kitty corner to mine was a guy they meaning the government likely the communication security establishment or ceases I'm not sure it would be a spy agency they they had this house and I was told at the time it was a surveillance house and I was the person they were watching because of stories I did on talisman energy I didn't believe them. I said well you know you don't believe me just send an email to a retired agent, you know, in the Maritimes, let him know about the surveillance house. Watch what happens. The next day that house was the moving trucks moved up, cleaned it out. And the reason I became suspicious that there was a male living there, a man and a woman, the man would be mm, Caucasian, mid forties, maybe. Um, who knows, but he, uh, he spotted me twice on my deck. And each time he saw me, he fled into the house. He didn't walk. He just, like, fled. I thought, whoa, what's that about? And I thought, maybe he's in a witness protection program. No, uh, it turned out he worked for some agency. And so the moving trucks moved out, cleaned out the house in two days. And a month later, they put up a for sale sign. Usually it's the other way around. The for sale sign is up first. And then I met with the agent in New Brunswick, and he confirmed it was a surveillance house. I said why? He said well we'd, we've been monitoring you and we don't like what you're they didn't like what you did with talisman. For instance the uh, the head of the Canadian Petroleum Association I don't know if I have the title right but it's a group of um, oil and gas companies in Canada and once had a president it still does but at one time the head of this organization his brother was the head of CSIS. Does it You're beginning to see how things work now so and I didn't do that story on talisman and it had to do with genocide in South Sudan and a law and a court action a lawsuit filed because of it by churches in the United States this is a simple story you get a copy of the, the 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 court statements and you do the story you know but they didn't want to run it here but they did in Toronto, a small news agency, and it eventually went around the world. But I'm told that's the reason they moved in. And I didn't feel afraid. Now, had I been working in Managua, Nicaragua, say, I would have been shot like the other reporters. But here it's an economic execution. They'll make sure you're not employed. So. And then I had a really ugly incident. I will not mention the name of the person. I'd love to, but I can't. But um, it was a lady. She worked in a news capacity at CBC Edmonton, working late at night. She was waiting, brought in her vehicle for repairs. was going to take the bus home. I said, well, you'd be on the bus for an hour and a half. I know where you live. I'll drive you there. And I got off work around no, 11.30 or so. And I dropped her off at her house. And she said, do you want to come inside for a drink? I said, well, no, I'm driving. I'm not going to have any alcohol. No, no, we'll have an orange juice then. And I had been there before for a party with Alice and my wife. And you know, I knew where the house was, older house, small. So we entered the house through the back dark area where they had a porch that was the door she used i go inside i sit down on the couch she sits down on the floor and asked me to sit down on the floor with her i thought that was odd i thought well i don't want to make her feel bad she's a little bit hippie like so whatever i sat down i would have been four feet from her four and a half five feet away She was wearing a skirt. She opened up her legs. you could put a two-foot ruler between her kneecaps. And she raised her eyebrows up and down, up and down. I went, holy shit. So I looked at ornaments on the wall and talked about them and got out of there. And I mentioned it to a social scientist. I said, what was that about? Because she's never hit on me at work. Yet, this happened. He said, I know what that's about. That's not sexual. That's political. You're being set up for a sexual assault. Then I said, yes, I get it. So, true story. So these companies are not always honorable.
0: A sexual assault because they wanted to control you?
1: Yeah, get you fired. Yeah, sure. I mean, what do you think Jeffrey Epstein's Island was all about? Do you think
0: I'm uh, better? I, I'm. Uh, I'm going to redirect that. What do you think Jeffrey Epstein's island was all about?
1: It was a blackmail operation. There was a huge complex, and if you could see all the cameras they had in there and all the screens, they were they got men in there. Men enjoy sex, I think, more than women. But for some reason, some men like having sex with with minors. Yeah, some of them like it teenagers. I mean, they don't look like they're young, but they're pretty, and they're young and innocent, and and they enjoy having sex with them. But it was all videotaped, the whole damn works, and there's hundreds of guys there, and prominent people. That's why Epstein died. He didn't commit suicide. It was impossible to hang himself from that position, and he was screaming before he died. So put two and two together. He knew too much and had to be taken out. That's my view. And I think if we could have uh, God mediate this and rule on whether I'm right or wrong, bring them down, well, use, use your religious connections, Inwood, you know <laughs> hey, God, am I right? <laughs> He'd give a thumbs up. I think this is, it's a blackmail thing. Yeah, Operation Blackmail. I'd love to see those tapes. Not to learn any new positions, mind you, but just to see who the hell they are. I'd, the
0: names are out there, but... Yeah, that's my that's my take on it. Yeah, wouldn't that be something I, I mean it'd be a pretty open shut case if God came down and just said, Okay, let's yeah. let's just sit here. Common sense would prevail in about ten seconds and he'd go and be like, This ain't worth my time I'm coming down. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I mean to to summarize about what goes through a reporter's head. I remember we had guys over in Iraq in the first uh war guys meaning cbc people but they left when the fighting started and i texted or emailed them what are you doing why are you fleeing to lebanon this is a war you cover a war well we might get hurt yeah i know well that's the idea i mean soldiers are going to get hurt killed and if you can't accept that it's not the job for you you know i blasted head office over that and even you know i see on tv the foreign reporters were fleeing to Lebanon uh, because when, when the fighting started and the, uh, the Iraqi reporters followed them out at the airport and they're saying, what are you running away from boys? This is a story. And they let them know they weren't doing their jobs. And uh, it's tough, but if you can't accept that, to be a reporter that you might get threatened or hurt, maybe killed, don't be a reporter. It's the same with medics. When I talk to uh, uh, the ambulance people, they're not in the business for a long time, maybe five years. It's hard to take what they see. Hard to take that. So they get out. And they know that going in, that it's rough. You know, I remember being with a reporter one time over a crime scene and she was crying. And I said, well, this is part of being a reporter, you know. It's going to upset you, but you can't let your emotions get in the way. Same with the homicide detectives. I mean, the good ones will talk about a file and you don't see them running away to the bathroom crying and just dealing with the facts. And reporters should be like that too. And uh, of course, not every story involves a threat of death in that. Most, I guess, if you're Stepping on toes involved the threat of a loss of employment, you yeah. I worked with a guy. He was an operator, an operator, and he had a very good voice, and I told him so. I said, why, why didn't you become a DJ? He said, I was for many years. Worked in Vancouver, Calgary, big markets. And uh, what happened to him? Well, he worked at a, a radio station in the Edmonton area. He felt he was not paid for the extra hours that he worked and he brought his case to the, the labor board they ruled that he was going to get this back pay it wasn't a lot of money seven thousand or something but you know what he was never a dj again he was an operator you know, that was his punishment
0: so eyes wide open walking in if you're a podcaster such as myself or if you're a documenting filmmaker or if you're you know, um, broadcast news, you know, the list goes on. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're going to, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I've, uh, started just recently is, uh, I've started a sub stack just lightly writing mm-hmm. because people, you know, as people learn from me on this show, I, I try and pull out, you know, what Byron has to offer. Um, more so it certainly I share my thoughts from time to time, but I, I started, um, writing to try and get some of my thoughts out uh, for people if they wanted to know. Either way. One should realize walking into this, eyes wide open, the way they will attack you in Canada then is exactly what you're saying. Economic suicide. Uh, They're going to... Economic execution. Or execution, not suicide, Mm -hmm. sorry. They're going to try and pull away your job and and discredit you and everything else. Mm -hmm. Even if you think it is trivial in what you're talking about. If you get too close to the sun, you yeah. know, I'm sitting across from a guy who's had <coughs> CSIS or what's the other organization? It's
1: called the Communications Security Establishment. C-S-E. Yeah, yeah they, they have a huge complex outside Ottawa. You cannot get near it. Yeah, and they have a, um, the finest computers in the country. They monitor all emails. And if you don't want to believe me, Next time you send out an email for the hell of it, put down toward the end kidnapping, women's rights, native rights, cocaine, that email you thought was private is being read on a computer in Ottawa. It's being highlighted, so I'm going to walk over and say, yep, let's get a copy of that. Nothing is secret. All the emails are in fact, um, can be read by people at the communication security establishment. They are part of a five um, um, they're part of a network called the Five Eyes. It used to be called Echelon. And the other uh, nations, United States, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand. They trade information all the time. Yeah. I recall working on the story, funny enough, we just mentioned Talisman. Um, In South Sudan, where these atrocities happened, there were two uh, guerrilla groups fighting the government in Khartoum, in North Sudan, Sudan. and one of the guerrilla leaders was still in South Sudan, but his wife was living in the United States, in Minnesota. (coughs) Excuse me, I contacted her for information on her husband's group. And we talked for, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour on the phone. And the next day or a couple of, maybe a couple of days later, very soon after, she phoned and she was very angry with me because someone had got into her computer and wiped everything out after our talk. And I said, well, that would be your friends at the NSA, the, the American Electronic Spy Agency, or maybe the Canadians did it on their behalf. I don't know, but she blamed me for it. Not that I did it that because she talked to me she was punished and i said yeah i think that's true so i mean that's the real world out there not what we think it is
0: here i want to uh throw an experience at you and uh from a guy like yourself i'm curious your thoughts on it i went to ottawa i uh, caught the convoy in ontario followed it in it was um, as close to a Bob Marley song as you'll ever get uh, playing out in front of your eyes. But I listened to you tell stories and I go, that was the last time I think Sean got to be in so naive in the world that nothing you know, bad could happen there or that people weren't there for all the right reasons or what have you. And I go, if Canadian intelligence will put a building up beside byron christopher for a story he's doing what will they do to people in ottawa that were trying to get those stories out yeah and at the time i would have thought uh <clears throat> oh, you know like that that's nothing but then i i told you sean ran into a brick wall and yeah. came back licking his wounds and everything else well it's been a year since then what do you think uh the canadian government sees this, all these different organizations when they stared at ottawa would have been doing yeah.
1: Well, to back up a bit, this organization that I talked about is the Communication Security Establishment, CSE. You can Google it, they have a website. They won't tell you a lot, but <clears throat> they have files, and this is parliamentary information, on one in four Canadians. That would be you and me. And anyone else listening to this who's a bit of a shit disturber, they have a file on you. Yeah. I was told that by an agent that I got to know well. He retired, and he said, "Yeah, we have a, we had a file on you." Yeah. Well, I said, "Well, that's nice to know." So it's your taxpayers' money; it's funding this bullshit. And they didn't they didn't build that house, um, Kitty Corner. They Sorry. they rented it. Rented. Yeah. It. That's what I meant. So I went to the neighbor, neighbor, and uh, I said, "Who's your neighbor here?" And he said, "Oh, he works at the post office." I said, "That's a nice house for someone working at a post office." I live in a nice neighborhood. And the last time I spoke to him, I said, tell me about your neighbor. He said, oh, yeah, he was a banker. The story changes. I said, why did he leave? And he said he left because he, he uh, they foreclosed on his house or something. I said, if you're a banker, they don't foreclose on your house. <laughs> you know, That's a bullshit story. They left because they were busted, your buddies. And I... Referred them to the story I did on my blog, and I'll give you the name if it's called uh, uh, about the. Some reference. I forget the headline now, How the Spies Decked Me it is the play on the word deck. Yeah, yeah.
0: For, for the listener, where can they go to find all your work, Byron?
1: It's easy. It's my name, and I'll spell it Byron, is B Y R O N. The family name is Christopher, regular spelling. So that's ByronChristopher.org, O R G. And you'll find all. And
0: I and too. I would add in if you just Google Byron Christopher, that's yeah. what comes up. Yeah, there's a whole pile of stuff yeah. on me
1: now. Yeah, out there. Yeah, even Wikipedia has done a page. Seems weird. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so come back to it, Ottawa. When you stare at Ottawa, when you saw Ottawa play out, yeah. Um, what did you? What went through your mind? What were you staring at?
1: Well, I followed that a little bit. Now, mind you, I don't watch a lot of TV, but sure. of course you can't help but avoid it if you're in a lunchroom somewhere and they got a TV up and you watch it <clears throat> and of course you hear comments from people there was a quite a ground swelling of support for the truckers they were just everyday um, people not media savvy uh, but well-meaning they and their sentiment uh, gathered a lot of support They started moving across the country, got a lot of attention here internationally, across the world. They were known in Australia, Russia, everywhere. So they arrived there and um, they made a lot of noise. Uh, I wouldn't have done that. I would have just stayed there for a day. And uh, they were there to meet the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who ran away actually. So what maybe would be a better idea instead of honking there for several days, stay a couple of days, delivered to parliament buildings, diapers for Justin, diapers, leave all these boxes there. They'd give them to daycare centers and you make the point that he ran away. He was not a leader, but then they started playing dirty. They started uh, seizing freezing bank accounts of people who had given money to them. (laughs) What, what the hell's going on here? You know, so you see the true nature of these people. That's pretty devious to do that. And there was somewhere along the line, I think somewhere in Manitoba, someone objected to the the uh, the convoy and drove a car and hit some of them and and they were charged. I wonder how long they spent in jail compared to the leaders of the organization. And the, the truckers convoy, they are forbidden by law from talking about it. You couldn't talk to the leader now. No, that's censored. I mean, where have you heard that story
0: before? It's funny. I was supposed to have Tamara on uh, um, this week, and it's gotten backed off. So uh, to the listener, as I spoil that, Tamara is at some point going to come on, and it'll be an interesting chat.
1: Yeah, I mean, they had no business doing what they did to her. I mean, mean, please stop knocking the Russians, (laughs) you know, because we we have, I grew up, fearing the russians um well, some of that i'm sure is propaganda some was true but we have our own gulag here too when they tell someone you you did a demonstration it was peaceful uh, noisy you made your point fine right? but now we're going to seize bank accounts of people that support you we're going to put you in jail and they said oh you showed uh, nazi flags here well were they actually part of the, the demo or is that a protester or was the Nazi flag to indicate they're up against uh, Nazis? Look at Ukraine. Look at the Nazi involvement there. It's massive, huge. You don't see them make an issue of that. Yeah. So I don't know. I didn't follow that story closely, but when they started seizing bank accounts and I went, okay. What's next?
0: Yeah, I've always, I've uh, I've thought a lot about uh, my time there. And, you know, I was walking around interviewing people on the street. I mean, you didn't have to walk 10 feet and you'd find a story Yeah, over and over and over again. I mean, the people that ended up there went there because... They couldn't see any other way out. And yet, um, at the Ark hotel where I was staying, you know, and the head of the convoy was all situated. When I think back on that, there was zero security. So if you were a CSIS agent, if you were a nefarious individual, it doesn't matter. All you had to do was say a couple things and you probably could have walked right into that building sure. and had no issue. So it's like, well, yeah. at some point they were there, mm-hmm. you know, one, one, one individual in my mind sticks out so much because I. Uh, when he walked in uh you know it, i'll rewind the clock when i was there everybody was worried about antifa i did an interview on it um just trying to figure out what antifa was what i should be looking for i had no idea what antifa i've never seen one and um and so you know there was different people standing around the hotel that everybody was oh yeah i bet you you know everybody but they wouldn't go talk to him i'm like I'll go talk to them. I mean, if they're in Tifa we might as well know, right? And every individual I talked to turned out to be not in Tiff, or at least not in my mind. Uh, There was one individual, though, that I thought for sure had to be an undercover officer. Don't know for who. And the reason why was how clean he was. Every tracker that ended up there, including myself, had about... Four days, beard growth. We looked like we'd probably been run over by a train because, you know, you'd been driving long hours. The amount of emotional toll that had taken place on the highway, seeing all the people interacting with him, you were just drained over and over and over again. And there was one individual in the bottom of the dark hotel, and he wouldn't talk to me. And when he caught my eye, he left um, and made sure that he left. And I I, I was like, that was strange because everybody else... strange.
1: He's doing his job.
0: He's doing his job.
1: Yeah. Yeah, let me tell you a story. Are you done your story? Sure. Yeah. Well, interrupt. I, I just, yeah, I, no, I, no. That's your, yeah. your, 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 your soul is also picking up. This guy is not legit. I mean, you can tell. Um, years ago, when the Americans were testing their cruise missile, they did some of the tests here in Alberta. The missile was launched in northern Alberta and would land at a, a military base in. Um, Cold Lake, and the Americans had an office or building there. And the, the Edmonton Journal broke that story, that the cruise missile was being tested in Alberta. It was a great story. But no one knew what the damn thing looked like. There was no pictures of it in the American military. I called them out there, and they said, we can't comment on it. They confirmed they were testing it. I said, can you show me what it looks like, send me a picture? No, we can't do that. So I, I called the what was the, then the embassy of the USSR in Ottawa? Spoke to their head of communications, Alexander Podakin, former reporter for one of the news agencies in Russia. And I said, uh, Mr. Podakin, I'm working on stories on this cruise missile. He was aware of the, the testing in Alberta. And uh, he worked for Novosti, the Novosti press agency. He was Ukrainian. And uh, So he sent me pictures of it. They were large pictures, eight and a half by 11, like big size, and they were color, and quite sharp. And there was like four or five of them. So I got to see what the missile looked like. Now, it doesn't mean anything for radio, but at least I had that. Those pictures disappeared from my desk. That file is gone. But whatever, I did see them. And when Padakin came out here, he phoned me. He was at the Weston Hotel a nice hotel in downtown Edmonton. I went down there in my motorcycle to meet him. I went up to the desk and they wouldn't give me his room number because he's a diplomat. He came down. We went across the street to a restaurant that was underground a bit. We go to this restaurant for a meal and, uh, I sat down at a table and he said, no, you and I will change seats. I want to be able to see the door, see who's coming in fine. We we talked a long time there. We each had a burger, I think it was, and uh, we never stopped talking. And he suddenly became very agitated. I thought it was something I said, but it wasn't. I said, Is this, did I say something? Why are you so upset? He said, this guy followed us in here shortly after we arrived. And he said, it's over. look over your shoulder. In a minute or so, you'll see him. He's eating alone. I did. I looked over and the guy slowly eating and I thought, well, he's eating all by himself. He should have finished at his meal a long time ago. He said, this always happens when I come to your country. You get these people following us. And he said, you know, I'm not allowed to go 25 miles outside this destination. He said, for instance, I couldn't go to your home in Spruce Grove. That's outside. And he said, the same is true for Moscow. We have diplomats there from around the world. They can't freely run around the country. They have a 25-mile perimeter. Fine, I get that. So he said, but that guy follows in. It happens all the time here. And he said, I've become angry at it. So when he left, we got up, we finished our meal. Then we were walking out, and uh, Podakin leaves me and walks over to this stranger at his table. He stood over him and glared at him, and the individual looked very nervous he was a guy about 40 you know short hair you could tell he's probably rcmp and uh, he, he was afraid i thought there would be a punch-up nothing happened just looking and dirty looks and that he wanted him to know he knew what he was up to so i called a contact at k division rcmp about that i said do you guys get involved in that and he said, yes. He said, Byron, leave him alone. He's just doing his job. Oh. So you could see there's this conflict always, you know, behind the scenes. Uh, and I, I can understand it, but when you see it firsthand, you, uh, you know, it makes you wonder what else is out there.
0: When, when um, he said, when I come to your country, this always happens. Did yeah. you ever ask him about what well, this doesn't happen in other countries?
1: I did. Yeah he said it happens everywhere. I said so I brought up I said well I don't think it's any different if I went to, to Moscow and uh and was doing stories that things would happen. Yeah he didn't deny that. I was talking to a hockey player. Um Frank Mahovlich,
0: remember that yeah, name? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. He played for Toronto and Montreal. And he was on this this big series back in 1972. And he um he told me that it was um, he wanted to go to the opera in, in Moscow. And he said they followed him there. He's just a hockey player, <laughs> you know. And, uh, yeah, they, always little things like that, you know. But, yeah, it's that's that life, and I don't quite understand it, but you uh, came close to it, you know. And But to get back to your point about citizen uh, journalists, we all are that, you know. I think the advice I give people when they ask me, well, who do you trust? And I said, well, that's up to you. You do your research, but use common sense. If you're watching a television network and they're heavily subsidized by the government, use your head. You're not getting impartial news, know that. But if you want to accept it, go ahead. It's up to you. The internet is out there. There's all kinds of credible stuff out there. Yeah, there's bullshit too, but there's also bullshit in the mainstream media a lot of it but you have to sort that out and decide for yourself so i tell people uh, you know be your own editor you decide okay that yeah, makes they sense try,
0: they try they try and make it seem like uh, we're not capable of that of oh, being our yeah, own, you know right. there's too much different disinformation out there misinformation all these yeah. different things well
1: i mean i was a, a disc jockey and i remember working here in edmonton cfrn fm it's now called the bear I did the afternoon show there. And I remember the, back then we had a teletype where our stories came in. It was a machine that typed up all the stories. The summaries came from broadcast news, which was a branch of Canadian press. And there was a summary. Uh, every hour they had a summary of news Canada and around the world. And the very bottom of the summary, news summary was a story from Tehran in Iran. There had been Uh, a massacre in the square. I think 700 people or so died protesting Shaw. So, but it was buried down. And I said, why isn't that the lead story? Like 700 people is a lot of people, even if it's far away. I think that should be the lead story. That's, that's not right. And one of the other announcers there, I was complaining to him about this. And he said, well, if you think you can do any better, why don't you become a reporter? And that was my my inspiration, that argument. And I I mentioned that to um, a talk I gave somewhere. I forget now where. But I I mentioned that. I said I was suspicious of the news business. He said, well, now that you've been in it for 20 years, what do you think of it? I said, it's worse than what I thought. (laughs) And that's true. And that's when I was in it. And today it's even far worse. Far worse. So... um. I could come back to the analogy I gave you. I thought I joined a church. I was going to use uh, truth as a light. And as much as I could get as close to the truth as possible, not taking sides, but just putting the facts out there and let people decide. Uh, But I found out that, you know, there are agendas and you don't report people and you censor people. And that, uh, I can't get over that. I can't get over it. But I remember working at uh, Auschwitz For the CBC then, and wondering how I could handle that as a reporter then. And I thought, well, guess what? I'm seeing it today. I'm feeling now what the boys at Oshisium must have felt. I'm talking about COVID here and experimental injections and that. Yeah,
0: so. And just the... Man, there was a stretch there where it was... dark very very dark yeah you know and uh we did it to our fellow countrymen you know we 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 (laughs) the fear of of the cops coming and busting down the door or whatever was enough to push a lot of different people to yeah do some pretty incredibly terrible things to each other just the way we treated each other
1: yeah it's it really left a a bad image for Canada around the world. Totally, same with Australia. Look at the goon tactics down yeah. there, and even in Ottawa, I noticed photographs of the officers. They had their names covered up.
0: Well, I, I tell this story lots about the officers in Ottawa when I was there. The first, the first day, Byron, they were arms crossed. They had clavis on, very standoffish, and um, by day two, I would, I would. This is what I. Uh, Hypothesize, I guess, is they've gone home. One of the crew, one of their, one of their group, has turned on the CBC because everybody did it at least once, just to see what the CBC was saying or Global News or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they watched it, and they came back the next day and witnessed what was going on. And pretty soon, by day two, the Beliclava, or the arms were uncrossed. You know, mm-hmm. by day three, part of the belaclava was was removed, and by day four, they were laughing and and yeah. And then they get removed and the next group would come in, you know, and I, I it could be off of yep. my time frame by a smidge. But it, if if you were down in Ottawa for longer than 30 minutes, you're going, well, this isn't what they're talking about. I yeah. don't see anything in what they're talking no. about. And you could see it play out with the cops uh, over and over again, you know. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, by the end, Sean could joke with them, you know. Yeah. Yeah. tap them, tap them on the shoulder, that type of thing. Like it was pretty, none of those stories really get told a whole lot, but that, no. that's what I witnessed. And then, you know, whether it was, they put them on, you know, maybe it was time off or maybe, maybe they literally had shift change. It doesn't matter what it was, but new shift would come in. And I remember seeing the new cops, they all come in and they all think they're going into the war zone and yeah. it starts all over again. Yeah. And literally if you've been around there once again for a day or two, pretty soon they, they start to adjust yeah. and, and everything else. Yeah, no,
1: good. Good for you for going there, but um, if you base your observations on common sense, you should. have Everyone should be pretty well on the the same, same level. Uh, but it's when you got the agendas, you know. Well, you, oh, oh, you can't mention uh, Pfizer. You know they're they're supporting our news uh, magazine no. show at night. Okay, so you can't mention that they were fined. $2.3 billion, the largest criminal fine in U.S. history. You can't mention that? No, he can't. What are you thinking, you know? So you see that stuff, and it is so discouraging. It is, like, so discouraging. I remember we had, um, and I don't remember her name, but she was um, a gal who joined us. I'm talking CBC days here, early 90s, I guess, from Regina. She transferred out here, and she did the afternoon show here. And uh, then she was wanted on Canada or Western Canada warrant for theft. The allegation was that she had stolen two NAGRA, N-A-G-R-A, tape recorders, very expensive for tape recorders. I believe they're made in Austria, very high-end stuff, stolen them and had them in her house in Regina. And she was dating um, a taxi driver who brought her to work. She shared that information with him, that she had these tape recorders and she had taken them from work. And uh, when they broke up, he ratted on her. So that's, they got the equipment and she was in Edmonton at the time. And I remember the the RCMP issuing uh, a news release. They were looking for her. They had a warrant issued for her arrest. She was on holidays in the Rockies with her brother, who was an RCMP officer, funny enough. I did a story on it that did not go over well. I remember typing it out and her unit, the afternoon show came over and they said, are you going ahead with the story? And I said, well, yes, it's news. Why are you doing that? I said, it's news. We did a story on the, uh, ITV now global, um, uh, lady who was caught stealing a book at the bay here at Southgate Shopping Centre. They charged her. ITV got on the phone and called all the media networks saying, don't do the story. CBC did. We did the story. She was a former Miss Canada. This lady, I've forgotten her name now. But I mean, she, you know, ponied up, and yep, she was stealing this cookbook, and that was it. You know, took it, walked out of the store with it. So we did that story. Others censored it. But it's not right to try to censor it, but they went after me for that, so I ran this. I was doing the morning news, I ran it. We had three casts: six thirty, seven thirty, and eight thirty. I put it on the six thirty news, and again seven thirty, and after it aired at seven thirty, the phone rang in studio. It was a director of our director of radio, a former reporter, TV reporter, Susan, and uh, she said you've aired that item twice. That's enough. That's interference. I said, yeah, I aired it twice. And I aired it again at 8.30. So I got called into her office. This was 1988. She said, you're down to cover the Olympic Games in Calgary. I said, yeah, they have a room for me there in the media office. She said, not anymore. We checked our budget. We can't afford to send you there. I was cut from that assignment. So was my boss, James Wark, the news editor. We both lost that assignment. They had a jacket for me and a room and everything, and I was to do feature stories for national news. But that ended. So I mentioned that to people that that wasn't right. And you know what? Uh, someone close to me, I don't want to say her name. She said, you and your big mouth, you missed out on that. You know." So some people are in favor. Of censorship yet they want to the, sit down in front of tv and want the news yet you favor censorship
0: do you ever so. regret um some of the stances you've taken byron no or are you
1: clear with that. your conscience oh no I, the only thing i regret is not taking a bigger stand <laughs> you know I, I don't regret it at all i'd do it all over again i'd be more suspicious and then when that um lady invited me to her house late at night and did that I thought it was sexual and it was a friend who said no that's political you're being set up for a sexual assault so that made me very cautious and uh, I remember coming back to my office there it wasn't an office it was a desk in the newsroom and sometimes I'd open my drawers and I'd check for stuff see if anything was planted there imagine that I became suspicious I never found any cocaine but I thought I don't trust these people after what that woman did and i exposed her when i left the company i said this happened and she went on sick leave for four weeks she couldn't take the laughter in the office and then she eventually quit but there are stooges out there they don't have the talent you know but they know how to get ahead but i would i would would never do that to anybody that but
0: that's what happens i mean that's not an accident yeah Well, I think it's one of the things that uh, over the past couple of years, Sean's become less naive. There was some time there where... You'll do that with age as well. Now,
1: I'll probably be gone another 20 years, maybe 10. You'll be around. And if you could talk to me then, you'd say, I've learned even more. You think (laughs) you've uncovered some shit. (laughs) Look at what I found. It's like that, you know. And I don't knock people if they want to watch television and buy everything. You know, I'll hear that from people where I work. Oh, I saw this on TV, and I said, "Really? Do you believe that?" "Oh, yeah, it's on TV." <laughs> you know, it's okay. Yeah. Well, I remind them, and I say, "What channel do you watch? CNN?" I said, "Do you know that CNN has fewer viewers than the Cartoon Channel?" Do you know why that's so?
0: No. I said, it's "Credibility." What age did you realize Byron doesn't know shit? Um,
1: <clears throat> I think when I left home and I was 18 I realized I lived a sheltered life. I mean, put it this way you may not believe this I did not know what homosexual men did until I was 37 years old. Somebody in the newsroom told me that. I said, what? I didn't know that. You know, that's how sheltered I was. But I just even as a child, when I was four or five years old, my mother, I remember asking, we're in the kitchen, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a priest and live in a cabin in Northern Quebec. I don't know, didn't know anything about Northern Quebec, I was just a kid, but I wanted to go to the wilderness. And to this day, I still talk about living in a cabin, final days, the priest, not so much. My mother was Catholic, I never went to church. I never got wrapped up in that stuff. But although I did meet Mother Teresa, I was hugged by her.
0: What did you think of Mother Teresa?
1: She was short. It happened at the airport here in Edmonton. I went out to cover her arrival. She was in Alberta to collect a couple of million dollars for her charity in uh, Calcutta, India. So, um, and I was just simply getting her arrival. She land it and she had these guys with her whether I don't know some religious group Knights of Columbus or something they had these fake swords and the goofy hats with the whiskey tassels hanging and there was three or four on either side of her she was in the middle and she was short I remember that and she was maybe 10 feet away and there was a, a huge crowd there was a good crowd there and as she passed by me I said to her in Serbian Welcome to Canada. And I don't know Serbian, but I I looked it up. And she turned and and looked at me, and then st- stopped walking, and the guys stopped walking with the guys with the swords, and she cut through the crowd and came over, and reached up and gave me a big hug around my neck. So, and she was on her tippy toes, so she was kind of a little shorty. So I gave her a squeeze, put my arm around her, and gave her a squeeze with my right arm. And I can tell you she was pretty bony, pretty thin, pretty thin gal. And she whispered something in my left ear, probably, God bless you, or I don't know. Maybe she was asking for my phone number, but I had no idea. So, and that was it. But she knew I was a reporter because I had all this gear on me, tape recorder and microphone. And the most horrible thing happened, and I was hugging her, my, I put my... Uh, microphone in a not a secure spot on my chest and it dropped to the floor it has a crystal on the front of it it hit the the uh, hard floor out of the airport and i thought oh my god i've busted the crystal for sure i don't know how to explain that getting back so uh, the crystal was okay maybe god intervened and and uh, helped i don't know uh, but nothing happened i teased about that for the for years <laughs> over that mother teresa thing. But yeah, I saw her again at St. Paul when she got the money. And I remember Peter Laheed was the premier then. He was there and the minister of culture was there, the mayor of um, um the town was there and they, it was a flying saucer pad. That's where they had the ceremony. And I arrived there in the cruiser and uh, we all have kits, you know, reporters you have your own recorder, your own microphone, your own tapes. Um and um wind protectors, all of that, and, and microphone stands. Some asshole had taken my mic stand. I arrived and I wanted my own mic stands because I stand a distance away and turn it off. And uh, so I had to kneel there and hold up hold up my microphone. And you've got all these people talking. you got the mayor talking. I don't want to use it, you know, but I didn't want to hurt his feelings. So I kept recording Peter Laheed, the mayor, and all these people, and I can't even remember I think Mother Teresa maybe said a few words. But they're all we're all up there in the flying saucer pad, and I'm right beside the podium and holding my mic up. And try holding a microphone for thirty minutes with your arm extended. It's sore. So I had to brace my arm to hold it. It was sort of painful. I looked back and the people sitting Excuse me. People sitting at the back there, not far away, ten feet away, maybe. Peter and and the, and the group. Mother Teresa was there, and uh, they were watching me. And Peter gave a goofy smile, like "How are you?" And but Mother Teresa, I give her credit. She would lean over and and look concerned. She knew I was um, in pain holding this thing, and uh, she would squint, and I would say, "It's okay," you know. 10 minutes would pass I see her lean over to check on me again and I would say it's, it's okay you know we did this four or five times and in the end I I wasn't I was just saying just winking and saying it's okay and then, then I realized what am I doing here I'm winking at mother <laughs> Teresa you know? it's know crazy <laughs> yeah I remember going back to my cruiser and complaining to the technicians I said some asshole took my mic stand my arm's really sore and that and how was was Mother Teresa doing? I said she's in the back seat here. You want to talk to her? She's just having a beer. I was <laughs> you know, just you could goof around like that back then. Now you'd be called into a meeting, you know. You know, but uh, no, her, I do remember her being uh, short and um, thin. Yeah.
0: You um you mentioned uh, when I talked about the the clean dressed guy in Ottawa when yeah. you when I caught our eyes with him and he just left yeah. and he wouldn't talk to you. You said your soul is picking up, he's not legit. One of the things that um, surprised me right at the end of our first interview uh, is you talking about um, talking with, and I forget his name right now, but he was a psychic. and uh, uh, From British Columbia. Yeah. And, and then and then, uh, the, the spiritual experiences you had had with yeah. uh, people sitting on the end of your bed and that, and that type yep. of thing. And it's one of the things that I find very curious about you, Byron, I, I uh, you know, it, you you said it again. You said, uh, well, you, you brought up that your soul's picking up something. You mentioned that you were uh, raised in a Catholic family, that, um, you know, once upon a time you wanted to be a priest, but you've kind of lost that, that you don't go to church, and yet you've had some of these experiences that are, I don't know what what quite word to put on it, but I understand what you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. And um, I wonder if it's... Uh, a special ability you have or if it's just something a lot of people have lost and don't put much faith in themselves being able to discern like hmm there's something off there and so many of us just write that off two years ago I would have written that off a lot like yeah oh, there's something a little funny about that but yeah you know, it's not it a big odd. deal yeah but well, it, I, I put more and more <clears> throat> faith throat> I guess into that yeah. that uh, that feeling or that reaction it's called an intuition
1: women are better at that than men women are very good at intuition. I think they're better with their feelings. I will pick up when a person is holding stuff back or is a fake or whatever. You were too, your soul was saying, this guy is not legit, you can pick it up. But he's, he's giving you signals with his appearance. You uh, you look at his eyes, you know, the eyes often shout what the lips fear to say. Is another tip, mm. L- watch the eyes. And you can tell when a person's legit. I mean, when you're talking to a child, who's eight or nine years old, they're legit. When a dog comes up and his tail is wagging and that, they're legit. You you know, you know, bullshit. And uh, and people are cautious; they don't mean to be uh, harmful. But I suspect that individual, yeah, was uh, a plant. And why were they not? There're probably all kinds of plants there. Yeah, yeah. So it's I can't answer your question because I don't know how to answer it, but it's, you often go by gut feeling. Now when I f- first, the first uh, spirit that I saw, I was working overseas in Nepal at, uh, doing a story on a medical missionary. A child had died at the hospital. She was maybe a year old or so. Uh, emaciated. She had uh, had diarrhea and then she died. You know, never they couldn't bring her back. She appeared in my room I would say four feet up or so, just the top of her head down to about her waist a little bit more. She wasn't at floor level. And when I woke up, for some reason, I was like wide awake. I'm not talking 75% awake, 100% awake, alert. And I saw her there, and she was moving, so it wasn't a picture or an image. And it's my first experience with um, a spirit. Some would say they're a ghost, but I call them spirits. So I knew then and there. I said, oh, I've never been taught about this. This is crazy. And I didn't know who to tell it to. And I had a second uh, vision that was accurate. It was a a child who was abducted and murdered. I knew she was dead and everyone was saying she might be here. And I said, no, she's on the other side. And when I was working on the book on Richard Lee McNair, uh, the murder victim, I had I had up his autopsy pictures on my computer, which you see over there, and they were pretty bad. This guy was shot point-blank range. We see where the bullets went in and the damage it did to him. He died instantly. And I had this up because I was writing the murder chapter, and I wanted to be reminded of what this guy went through. But that night, I don't know, around three in the morning or so, two, I could feel... The mattress on my bed, the compression, go down. It woke me up, and I was again wide awake. And there he was sitting there on the edge of my bed. He turned and looked at me, sort of a studious look, not anger, uh, more indifferent. I think he was trying to say, you've seen me nude um, and in that shape. Maybe he's trying to say, be honest about it, you know, or don't do it. or I don't know what he was doing. He didn't say anything. He just looked at me. And I was not afraid of that. The third one, I said, I'm used to this, whatever, you know. I just, we just looked at each other. And this went on for 20, 30 seconds. He didn't get up and walk away. He just pixeled away, like the other two, gone. And they're gone like in, you could time it, second, half a second, they go fast, they don't. And I don't know what that's about, Um, but no one you'd ever tell me that when you die, that's the end of it. No, you do go somewhere. Yeah. I'm more than convinced of that. And there's enough books on that. It's not have anyone you... hearing this. Well, i never heard that before. Well, <laughs> just Google any mediums that have written books. They pretty well have the same story, So, And I once, uh, this is not a news story, a personal one. I was in the West End of Edmonton. Uh, And they they had a Walmart uh, store at the Centennial Mall. It's moved now. But I went in there on a busy Saturday afternoon to buy some running shoes, black ones. I walk in, the place is crowded, and I spotted off in the distance a woman in a wheelchair looking up at shoes on the shelf. And uh, nothing unusual about her. So I, I go over and I sit down on one of these little stools, and I'm trying on these shoes. I'm bent over, tying them up. I look up and I can see right in front of me is this wheelchair. I could see the shiny rims, the metal rims. And this was a woman. She's looking at me and she sees, we make eye contact and then she sharply turns her head and says, we've met before. And I knew what that meant. I'd never seen her before, but I, I got the drift of what she was saying maybe a previous life or whatever we've met before and it took her courage to say it by the way she snapped her head when she did say it I said I understand how long have you been in a chair she said 26 years she had a sing-songy kind of voice you know um and she was upper 40s maybe early 50s I can't tell especially with women you can always say can't tell so uh I said, were you in a motor, uh, motor vehicle accident? She said, no, I had a brain aneurysm and I died. I died twice. I said, oh, you've been to the other side. She said, yes. And she wasn't a pretty gal, but when she smiled, she was warm, you know, a very pleasant lady. And she said, yes, she was so excited to tell me about what it was like on the other side. And I said, so what was it like? And she said, well, the first time I died, She said, I met my dad there, and on earth my dad only had one leg, but in heaven he had two. He had two legs. And uh, I I saw him, and she said, what a feeling of peace. I can't describe it, and how bright it was there, and how good I felt. And so they pulled me aside, and they said, it's not your time. You have to go back. She said, I argued with them. I did not want to go back. And she said, then I wake up in the hospital. But she said that happened and she said i want you to know that you should see the other side how beautiful it is you never want to come back she died again this time in a hospital she said i remember passing through the walls and seeing her relatives outside waiting in the room and she said it wasn't long before i got there it's not far away she said you can't see it it's all i don't know how to describe it uh, she said i arrived with a little girl and she got in, and she said, I got in too. Well, this would be the what we call the pearly gates. And she said, they brought me to a room and told me it's again not my time. And I spent more time there, and I argued with them. I really argued. I did not want to go back. She said, Byron, you never want to. She said, she didn't know my name. She didn't know my name. But she said, you never want to be back here again, not after being there. So, and then she said, I woke up in the hospital. And I said, how do you support yourself? She said, I don't. My husband and I live in an apartment building and he does uh, jobs there and they give us free rent. Okay. Uh, Her name was Cheryl. I remember that she gave me her name is my sister's name is Cheryl. So it's easy to remember. And I said, well, it was nice talking to you. And she started to wheel away. And I said, what is it you don't like about being here? And she stopped and she said, people are not nice to each other here. But before she left, I said, well, you're, you're willing to call me if you want. And she was holding on her lap a black purse where the little, little snaps on it, you know, they open up with the little snaps, they kind of click together. She had that black purse there. I said, I'll give you my card if you're free to phone me, if it was a business card. I turned it upside down, so you know, and she doesn't look at it. She says, I know who you are. I said, you do? She said, I recognize your voice from the DATS bus, disability bus, speakers on the bus. Oh, she turned it over and saw my name. Isn't that weird? So these um, counters I think are meant to be. Yeah, she is, yes, she's never phoned, but nonetheless, I've never forgotten that talk at the back of the Walmart store, the lady in the wheelchair
0: you think these um I don't know Sean walking in your 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 house two years ago, and then this again is meant to be then
1: yeah definitely, yeah,
0: and sometimes you can
1: have um uh, again, I say women are better at this than men, this intuition it was nineteen sixty nine I was working at a radio station in quebec city c f o m and I was invited out had a girlfriend and she invited me out to her company function on one of the islands in the St. Lawrence River. We went out there in a boat and uh, there was maybe 75 people in the room and they they had them all organized. It was a U shaped uh, thing that had all the tables, people on either side of the table. I sat beside Hélène and they had three door prizes. They gave us tickets when they came in. They had three door prizes. We each got um, two tickets. She got two, I got two. Everyone got two tickets. So they, they announced um, that they are going to um, call out these numbers They're for the winners. Before he called out the number, I stood up. It was my number. But I stood up before he called it. So that shocked Helene. She said, how did you know that? I said, I had no idea. I can't explain. But I don't normally stand up in a crowd never do that especially then and i sat down and i gave the prize to her they had a second draw and i don't know got it and the third one i said uh i'm getting the third one too but i'm not going to stand up and i got the third one oh that's freaky so you ask how does that happen how do you know that and i can't give you an answer i don't know the answer a medium maybe could tell you that Maybe 10 mediums would have 10 different accounts of what happened there, but it's real. And I'll tell you what, it freaked out Ellen, girlfriend. We talked about that in the bus going back. I said, I have no idea what happened there. He said, It's scary. And I said, Yeah, because I don't understand it. And to this day, I don't understand it. But I think um, you have, uh, not talking about you, when I met you, I think you seek the truth. You're not here for the glory or the money. You'd uh, make a hell of a reporter. I don't know how long you'd last, given today's market. But I appreciate you seeking the truth. I think you're being used, too, by Upstairs. That's my belief. And I'm not religious. I'm just saying that's... I mean, they see a lot of shit going down here, and they're not happy with it. And you're like, anyone who seeks the truth has become like a little soldier. No fighting for the truth and uh, I have mo- uh, contempt for people in newsrooms as censor others like rebel news does a good job in breaking stories but when they attend uh, news conferences they say oh no you're not legit screw off you know they've broken more stories than the mainstream media put together and they're not on the take I don't work for rebel news but I'm just that's an observation
0: yeah, it's an interesting thing to to just want to have open dialogue. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, I don't yeah. think there's anything dangerous in that, except oh, there is. There is yeah. everything dangerous in that, yeah. right? Jeez.
1: Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. You know, and here's another story I can share with you, but I can't say the name. There's a is a criminal act here, but the 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 person was never charged. Some time ago, and I can't identify the year because it identifies the guy, but let's say 80s, a garbage man in Edmonton, working for the city of Edmonton, sanitation worker, finds... I don't know if I should ever share this story with you. You did. Yeah, the, the VHS, VHS tape. The VHS tape brings it home. This is a pedophile, an adult male screwing a native kid up the ass. He videotaped himself, and, well, they brought it to the police. Police uh, I talked to the officers involved. Uh, the judge, re- it was a judge, Court of Queen's Bench Justice. He resigned when they gave him the letter to sign, cleaned out his desk. They said, clean out your desk in five minutes, and he's gone. And uh, But they wouldn't give me his name, but one of the officers who flew to Ottawa to get the papers for his dismissal said, yeah, he uh, we made it. It was a plea bargain. I said, like hell, it was a plea bargain. He was never charged. You cut him a deal. That wouldn't happen to me, or you. Most people out there, they'd be charged. The evidence is right there in the VHS tape. So anyway, and then I shared that with a retired Court of Queen Spence Justice here in Edmonton, not the same guy. And this fellow is a straight guy. And he knew all about that. He said, we heard he he had child porn. I said, child porn? I said, he was a leading actor. What are you talking about? He said it was a plea bargain, Byron. I said it wasn't a plea bargain. You guys cut him a deal, police did, because his brother was a very senior politician. If I told you who he was, you'd know who the offender was, and he's never been charged. But along the way, you know, you were trying to put this story together and getting evidence, trying to talk to the guy. He's not available, and then uh, he was uh, he was a liberal appointee by Pierre Trudeau, and uh, he was in tight with the liberal party and who contacts me one of the organizers liberal organizer lady she said we know about this guy his brother told me all about him don't do the story byron because it would upset his wife i said well i suspect his wife doesn't know if he's a pedophile he's not identified but she didn't still didn't want it out to embarrass him because word would get around i said the story's going out and I put it out on my blog. The next day, phone rings, law courts building. They want to know who the judge was. And I said, uh, I'm not giving you a name. He's never been charged, but if you really want to know, go over to the court of Queens bench, talk to the senior judges. They'll tell you who he is. That wanting to give a name out over the phone is a trap door. Then they could say, oh, Byron identified you or whatever. But yeah, so there's another story of how uh, it's difficult to do stories. Now, I mentioned this to a certain son reporter who was working, who would have known his brother very well. And I said, this is a great little story. And he said, oh, Byron, we all knew about that. We just didn't want to do it to um, cause embarrassment to the child. I said bullshit. You knew who his brother was. You worked with his brother. That's why he didn't do the story, and you never knew it anyway. I don't think. They just bullshitting. Didn't like to be scooped. I did it. It's up there. And occasionally I'll run into a judge, and I'll mention that. And uh, there's a court. There's a Alberta judge, Larry Anderson. I'll tell you who he is. He's a criminal defense lawyer, One, a good guy. And I ran into him. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I did a story in one of you guys. Yeah, so I told him the name and that, what it was about. So I get back home, and the number of hits on that story, <laughs> I must have had about 10 in an hour. Larry must have been phoning his buddies <laughs> to tell them all, all about this story. Yeah, so that's funny.
0: When you covered the uh, the prison beat, yeah. uh, you you said something that I, 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 you know, there's lots of things about the first time we sat down, Byron, that really stuck no, with I me. I don't remember much of that. <laughs> one of one of the things that stuck yeah. with me is you. You said you trusted uh, um, inmates more than you would uh, yeah. media. Yeah. Uh, you also you also mentioned in there that they I can't remember if it's the guards or the other inmates or who was it didn't want you talking to the pedophiles, and you were like, yeah. I'm going to talk to everybody.
1: Yeah, that, that was the, the head of the inmates committee, Johnny Shimmons, said that. And uh, he said, Is it true that you talked to this pedophile? I said, Yes, I did. I brought him up into the office, in fact, the warden's office. We sat down, had coffee and biscuits. <laughs> That's funny. So the reason I talked to him is that he spent time with David Milgard, wrongfully convicted. At this time, Milgard was still in the joint. And I said, I know you spent time with the Shuffles. What's he like? So he gave me a rundown. And I said, who do you think killed Gail Miller? He said, it wasn't Shuffles. I said, who was it? So he tells me. I said, how do you know that? He said, said, Larry Larry told him. Larry Fisher was, eventually went down for that crime. I said, "Who, who told you that? He said, Larry did. He said he killed that girl. Got away with it. I said, Where'd he tell you that? And he told me where the prison they're at. And I said, Well, so uh, so I told Simmons, I said, That was an important meeting. And he said, Well, I don't give a shit about that. But if you're talking to the pedophiles, you don't talk to us. I said, That's fine. But I am talking to anyone in here, whether they're pedophiles or killers like you. And I said, Johnny, you killed a guy the baseball bat i know you've killed another guy and got away with it right he said yeah i said well why am i talking to you you know so we had our out in that and in the end i end up talking to everybody including guards to this day prisoners send me emails read the site get on one uh, phone call i got one day was from a prisoner who said, you've identified the killer of another prisoner here. And it's not him, Byron, it's somebody else. It's definitely not this guy. And the guy making the call was Colin Thatcher. Colin was quite reliable. He was dead on with his information. And I checked and sure enough, he was right. I found out who had taken out this other prisoner. And when I did a blog story on what it's like to be a prison reporter, I was sitting in my car one night, and my phone rings. It's a British Columbia number. It's from Nanaimo, Vancouver Island. The guy identifies himself. He said, do you, re- do you know me? Do you remember me? I said, No, I don't. He said, I was at the MAX, the MAX, the f- federal prison. I was in A unit. I said, I didn't know the boys in A unit. I was more B unit, Thatcher and Simmons and these guys. Um, he said, Well, I read your story. He said, I knew all those guys in the story. He said, do you want to include me in it? I said, well, I don't even know you. Uh, did you murder someone? Well, yeah, I did at the joint. But it, I said, well, why? Well, I said, what are you in for? He said, well, I was the guy doing the jewelry heist. I said, oh, you're the guy that ran a truck through the front door of a jewelry. No, no, that was another guy. I wouldn't do that. I did other kinds of jewelry heists. I never heard of him. He said, I... But I wanted to join the, the Angels, um, Hell's Angels, a bikers group. And he said, uh, but they didn't think I was tough enough, so I, I took out a guy at the joint. I said, who was that? He said, the guy in the lunchroom. I said, oh, yeah, he was a pedophile or something. He said, yeah, it was me who killed him. Well, he says, yeah, but they didn't have cameras at that point, not, not on a spot. He got away with it. He said, that was me. And he said, I'm with the Hell's Angels now, and I'm in Nanaimo. I said, okay. <clears throat> And he said, before I phoned you, I checked with our office in Vancouver and they said, you're okay. I said, oh, that's good. I got a, I got a thumbs up from the Hell's Angels in Vancouver. (laughs) This Stupid world. So he wanted me to include him in the, the blog story. And I said, no, you're not sort of high profiled enough, you know, but he phoned a few times and, you know, he kind of felt left out, I guess. I said, well, give my regards to, uh, your biker boss over there, and I said, oh, by the way, if you're connected with the bikers, what happened to Leo? I did a story on him. He said, oh, yeah, Leo, I used to talk about you. Well, Leo, you're not supposed to know, but he did a bank robbery and got caught, and now he's back in the joint, but if you're not supposed to know that, I said, that's okay. (laughs) It's just weird. It's weird being on that beat. But yeah, to get back to your point, I, I have found, I got this from a criminal defense lawyer david wilson when people he used to be in real estate and when he uh, studied law became a lawyer he became a criminal defense lawyer and he would go to prison and and his real estate buds would say what's it like being at the prison you know it must be pretty awful and it was his observation that he saw more honesty with prisoners than people on the outside Now, I've evolved that to, say, the media, which I believe to be true. A lot of the boys in there, they don't have anything to lose. No, shit, they'll just square with you on anything. Um, Remember, I went out one time fishing for a story. It was fall. And the natives, prisoners had a native day there. They had in elders give a talk, their, their little powwow thing, and they're beating on drums and dancing and that and it was kind of like a social thing i went out fishing for stories and i was sitting at the edge of the hockey rink they used to have a hockey rink there and it was empty but they kept the, the boards up i was sitting on the edge and this guy comes up sits down to my right a short guy native guy he i said what's your name and he gives me his name didn't ring a bell he said you know who i am and i said no he said, I killed a guy up right near Peace River. I said, oh, yeah, you're the guy who was at a party or something. He said, yeah, that was me. I said, oh, OK. Um, I said, well, h- what feelings do you have now being here? I mean, they're talking about um, native spirituality and trying to get your life together. You're high on drugs or something. And yeah, I said, you all are, you guys, and you stab people. And um, But how do you feel about that now? He said, you know that guy I killed? Yeah, he deserved it. When I get out, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to piss on his grave. I said, well, I don't think the native spirituality is quite working out for you. He said, see you later. And he tapped my leg and he ran off and joined the crowd. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> what a weird experience. Prison.
0: Do you ever, um, <laughs> you know, 74 today? 74? Yeah, I'll be
1: 74 on May 1st. 74
0: yeah. May 1st. Hmm. 37 in uh, May 2nd, so we're, we're nice and tight our birthdays.
1: Oh, yeah, there you go.
0: Yeah. Do you ever um, wonder how the heck you ever got to where you're at, Byron? Like, you know, you go from, you know, disc jockey to reporter to crime beat to, you know, like having... CSE set up a, you know, a House stake, it, yeah. stake out beside you. You know, you, you just sit there and you go, what, like, what is going on? And, you you know, you we've, yeah. we've done the full gambit today all over again, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, I hope
1: you find it interesting, you know, you can learn from it if you can. You know, I've made some mistakes and done some right things as well as part of life. But as a child, I was very shy. I One of the greatest gifts I got was a... Um, a crystal radio. They don't make them anymore, but you had to assemble them, and, and you had to hear it with a headset, you know, a little cheap headset. I would listen in bed at night to the local station, even though it had CBC programming at night, which is boring, but I was so excited to hear that, and I would listen to it. I could feel the cold coming in through the window, the storms and the maritime, the big snowstorms, and it just felt so neat. And I thought even as a kid, it would be nice to drive around town and play music for people. I could, there were cars that go around announcing when there was boxing matches and that. I said, wouldn't it be nice if people could hear some music and I could maybe do that. But uh, as a child, I stuttered a lot. So I was uh, not good for any announcing job. And then uh, as, uh, as a teenager, I played indoor soccer for a team that won a few championships and they voted me captain of the team. I was played defense. That was uh, nice. And then they, one of the radio, the radio station down, asked me to do a report on the stats for some league. So I did. I was doing stats for a hockey league. So the manager said, "That kid sounds. Like he has some talent. Can he come in and read our sports?" So I did, and man, was I nervous. Oh, jeez. And I recorded it. I would never do it live. Recorded it and went home, turned off all the radio so no one could hear it. I was so ashamed. And, uh, and then uh, when I turned 18, I didn't have any work, and I was doing sports. And one of the announcers there said, there's an opening at a station in Newcastle now called Miramichi. They're looking for a DJ. And I said, well, I haven't done that. The guy said, well, I think you'd be okay. So I applied and got the job worked evenings and then afternoons and was there for a short while and then worked in Quebec City and then in British Columbia, TV and radio, and then I moved to Australia. We're talking 1970 now, worked radio there and then TV, but I was in sales because of my accent. I couldn't get on the air the way as so I could hear, but I did commercials and the commercials went over well. The products were sold because it was so different, and then I moved to, got out of that. I found very deceptive the sales business a lot of con and that I, um, I I really wrestled with that I didn't feel good about it felt ter- terrible really and uh, but I did okay with the sales I just didn't feel good inside so I'd, I left the business went to Perth West Australia met a lady there I became my wife and we traveled to Africa stayed there for a while but when I was in uh Johannesburg the major city in South Africa I did get around to the offices of the uh, South African Broadcasting Corporation they were downtown on Wellington Street and I cut a tape there and they wanted me to read news to a short wave that would go beam to North America and I said yes but my girlfriend who was from Finland said no she didn't want to stay in South Africa she hated it so we ended up leaving Africa and went up through Europe, took a train, and went all the way up to Germany, Sweden, and Finland. We're dark in 1972, and Hardis and I spent the year in Finland. And I would learn some Finnish, and uh, And it was really different being away from, uh, you were in Finland, too. That was your home for a while. I stayed in uh, Turku. You know where that is? It was called Obo in Swedish. It's a major city on the port, on the, uh, the Gulf of Bithynia. Um, I worked there on the docks, and uh, no one spoke English there. So when I came that's, back to you... That,
0: that's quite the experience to live somewhere where yeah. they can't speak your language.
1: Yeah, no, and uh, they spoke Swedish, but I didn't <laughs> speak Swedish. And the Finnish I picked up was I couldn't really use it because I lived in a Swedish community. They only There's like French is in Quebec. They were all Swedish there on the island, so I'd go into town to try and buy something and talk to them in Finnish, and they didn't understand Finnish. It was just Swedish, <laughs> just weird. The Russians, I didn't mind on the boats, so and I enjoyed talking to them about hockey. At the time I was there, the Canada USSR hockey uh, series, series was, was on. was going on, yeah. Yeah, I remember that, yeah, because the boys would uh, ask me off the ships, and I said, "Do you want to come here and watch it on a TV?" And I said, "The Russians." And I said, "No, I can't." You know, yeah, they're okay. I remember I pissed off everyone on the dock. There was a lot of workers there. They made big ships. Because one of the Russian guys said to me, "What's the price of vodka here?" <clears throat> I said, well, "I don't know." I asked around and told him was fifty marks or something for a bottle, and they, they. They often sold their vodka to the dock workers, the Russian guys from Leningrad. and uh, But they were mad because the Russians then knew the, the real price of the vodka, and that's what they wanted for theirs. And we said, we always undercut it you know, by 20 marks or something. <laughs> what are you doing? So they're quite annoyed at me for a while. Anyway, that was uh, left there. And we, we traveled back to Canada in late 1972. And we're at the airport in Helsinki. You've been there, I'm sure. And uh, there were some Canadians there I could hear them talk and I said to Hardis do I sound like that and she said yeah you sound the way they do I said that's weird I didn't think I sounded that way but you you don't hear English and suddenly you hear it and it just sounds weird yeah so I arrived back in Canada and I tried to get a job at a radio station in Brampton outside Toronto and I was explaining my background to the man on I think it would be program director and I had trouble with some words, you know, the words weren't coming right, and he just hung up the phone, you know, I'm going to hire this guy. So I worked in the government for six years, and to talk about uh, a square peg in a round hole, it was the federal government, it was not for me. They, we were building another airport outside Toronto at, at Pickering or Pickersley or something, Pickering, and, uh, and it fell through but there's some corruption there too. I saw that and it just bothered me that the amount of money they'd spend. Anyway, it was not for me. And I left and came to Edmonton. I did the afternoon show here, CFRN FM, now called The Bear. And from there, I started doing soft documentaries. Working FM was boring, I thought, because we played three or four records in a row and you weren't saying anything. So I just used to go to typewriter and work on little soft things. And that led to uh, freelance work, work with the CBC. And then when I got over there, I think my career took off. I worked in current affairs. And once I got into news, I began breaking a lot of big stories all the time. It was just fun. which is like cracking a home run. I got a thrill out of that. still do. And CBC led to overseas assignments, you know, Auschwitz, you know, Nepal, Nicaragua during the war stuff like that. So um, that was all interesting and a good part of my development. And then as you get older, you become more critical of stories. How could I do this better? Why did I not see this? Here's another point of view. I think the CBC, and I know people knock it, we at least had um, ethics, you know, generally speaking, that we were closer to the truth than the others. We felt maybe I'm biased, But along the way, when I left... Um, I left uh, Ched. I did a story, I forget what the story was about exactly, but I had to do with ethics and journalism. So I called the Canadian Association of Broadcasters in Toronto. They're like, it's an umbrella group. And I said, do you have a code of ethics? They said, yes, we do. It's a broadcast standards. And they showed me or emailed it to me. The code of ethics is pretty good. And I said, let me see now, you've got hundreds of TV stations that would be members and radio stations. How many of these these code of ethics were for sale for the members? How many have you sold? One. One media outlet in all of Canada had a code of ethics. And that was it. And I went, Wow. CBC, we had code of ethics in our handbook, but I'm talking about something you display on the wall, you'd put up in the newsroom. One. And I, the woman wouldn't tell me where it was, so I got phoning around. I began calling whorehouses. You can phone them. You know they're in Vegas, they're in Melbourne, they're all over the world. Brothels. I found one in uh, outside Melbourne. The guy answered. And he, I said, "Do you have a code of ethics?" He said, "Yes, we do, sir. It's right here as you enter our premises, right here by the door." You know. Okay. So there you go. I check around, I don't find any in the newsrooms, but whorehouses have a court of ethics. Think about that. That's an eye-opener. And the guy in Australia was a good fellow. He said, are you down here very often? I said, well, I do go visit people. He said, well, I'll cut you a good deal if you drop by. And guess what? I never did. (laughs) But it's just funny he would offer, you know, but it's just like, what? Crazy world.
0: Well, I've uh, you know I've enjoyed this. Uh, I don't know why I waited two years, but yeah. I, then again, always chuckle. It's uh, sometimes it's just meant to be, you know. Like yeah, yeah. Uh, good, thank you. I appreciate you you bringing me in and and uh, allowing me to grill you over the coals again. I'm not sure exactly that th- <laughs> yeah, that yeah. is what this was, but. Uh, Certainly enjoy uh, discussing and hearing some things. You know, I, I should point out, um, you know, you're going to be a part of the s Presents Legacy Media on March 18th here in Edmonton. You're going to be one of the four keynote uh, speakers. You're going to get to experience that night. This will be my uh, third iteration of it, so I, I look Good. forward yeah. to it. But uh, it, to anyone listening... If uh, you've liked what Byron's been talking about, in the show notes is the link. You can click on it, and you can yeah. you can go buy a ticket or two and and come see Byron well, along good. with. It would be fun. I'd enjoy.
1: You know, one of the problems I have, I can't shut up and talking about the media, and I've got to be careful. I remember there's three or three other guys. There are three other people there, so not to uh, to hog anything. Just let them. Maybe I. Well, that's it's my, my night to be a listener. And I take that serious, you know. I had, a ha- I had a haircut two days ago, just in preparation for this.
0: <laughs> well, the the nice thing is, is uh, as a as a host, I got to do my, you know. I've I've had to sit on stage with the likes of Danielle Smith and and um, you know uh, Todd Lowen, Travis Taves, uh, yeah. Brian Jean, yeah. uh, Rebecca Schultz was uh, was the group. There was five of them in Vermillion, and I had to battle with five politicians, if you would, trying mm-hmm. you know not to get them to. And uh, it's funny, um, I didn't find that big of a problem, you know, as, as a host. it's I feel like there's a bit of an ebb and flow yeah. to people talking and everything else. It's That's going to be my job. Your job is to come and, and let people listen to what you have to say. So, yeah.
1: Well, I, the advice I give people all the time is be your own editor. Hmm. Don't sit back and hear news on the radio or read it in the papers or watch it on TV and say, that's the gospel, that's it. No, 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 there's all you only we're only getting maybe five percent of the news the rest is never covered and you know look at the covid disaster the bullshit with that and they went along with it safe and effective they use that term all the time
0: yeah
1: yeah especially if they had sponsorships paid by pfizer they always said it oh he's an anti-vaxxer and all his propaganda conspiracy theorist um, I'm a conspiracy realist of anything, but I mean, if you just in life seek the truth, I want to know what's going on. And you're like that. Yeah. You'd be a good reporter. I don't know how long you'd last, but (laughs) I think you'd be a good reporter. I pick out people like you all the time. I'll work with someone else that you'd be a good reporter or this person be a good editor. You know, they're very balanced and, and this person's so opinionated, you know, you know what I think, I think this and I know they're not going to be a reporter, (laughs) you know you stay with your forklift or whatever but no that's um but I've been uh, I wouldn't do anything different Uh, the defeats I've had in life I'm glad I had them because then it showed me okay I'm not made for that I don't want to be in a job where I like some people at CBC and I don't want to knock them but toward my end there I would say how's it going there Larry and I said you know I've got four years and three months and two weeks now I get my retirement you know so many of the guys talk like that and I said "You I, I never want to retire I, I want to I want to work up until noon on the day of my funeral you know I, I love this stuff but these people were caught in a trap you know mortgages car payments and that and guess what they all died early they're dead they never got a retirement hmm. because they didn't enjoy what they're doing and you have to like it and I've met people that have just found their element, like Brian Hall, sportscaster. Brian loves what he's doing. If he's 110 years old, he'd still like to report because that's his, that's his little valley there. He just, he's at home, and, you know. Good for him, he's found his spot. But a lot of people are in boring jobs, you know. I've uh, I had, I had a job like that too in Toronto with the federal government. I didn't fit in there and I was not happy. You know, I even contemplated suicide. I was so unhappy. It's not right. And I said, no, and I'm glad I got out. And I'm glad I was on picket lines when the rocks or big boulders were flying all around and fighting and that. Yeah, you could get hurt, but shit, that was fun to me. It was reporting and things got smashed up a bit or in the joint when you piss someone off and they pin you up against the wall and you punch back and forth, you know. And yeah, it's not right, but it happens. You make a name and and now they're going to talk to you, you didn't rat on them, you know, and I get calls from prisoners all the time, emails, you know, and, and talk to judges with stuff. And It's cool with me, you know, but as long as you're real and honest and seek the truth as best you can, you're going to you have doors open for you. But if you want to just stick to a news release and defend the establishment or defend a union or whatever, uh, you're just a deadbeat waiting to die.
0: Well one final question um, before I let you maybe let myself out of here. I don't know've been, I've been enjoying this, but we did the the first time around we did the crude Master final five I've switched it to the, the final question brought to you by crude Master and it's uh, if you're going to stand behind a cause, then stand behind it absolutely. What's one thing Byron stands behind?
1: I think it's just seeking the truth and that goes for yourself, you know like what am I all about and how can I improve better? be a better human being. I think as I got older, I'm more diplomatic than what I was when I was younger. And little issues that are still wrong, I don't make an issue of it. It's not really worth it. you know. Um, <clears throat> but I would say I would just stand uh, for, for what I think is the truth. When I check out and arrive on the other side, and mind you, I'm not religious, but I'm smart enough to know that we go somewhere. I don't want to arrive there and uh, be an ass kisser. I want them to say, I want some high fives. I want them to say, yeah, you pushed humanity in the right direction. You're a little shit disturber and a little wink. We like that, you know.
0: Well, I appreciate uh, you doing this, Byron. I look forward to being on stage with you here in a couple of weeks. And uh, hopefully a whole lot more people get to, you know, if they haven't figured out who Byron is, they're certainly getting a taste of it right now.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. And I hope when we meet again on the other side let's say you ask about me and i hope you don't they don't tell you he's down below
0: <laughs> i don't think that'll be the no, uh, the I, issue no
1: i know it won't be